0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson here on Hamilton Today, your last episode of the week. Scott Thompson will return, the other Scott will return next week. He'll be back after a long vacation. I'm sure he'll be raring to go with all kinds of stuff, but he'll be back next week. Uh, We are jam-packed, but I got to tell you, before we get into any of that, be very thankful that you were not shopping at a grocery store in Australia this week. The, uh, there was a supermarket down in Australia that was entirely shut down because they found a spider in the supermarket. Now, not just any spider. This is described as one of the world's deadliest, one of the world's most dangerous spiders. However, however, this spider, the Brazilian wandering spider it's called, Um, it's bite brings about an unusual side effect in many people. If you were grocery shopping, let's say you're out there and you're looking for some kale and you're working your way through the fresh produce area and, uh, you're a guy and this spider jumps out and bites you on the arm. Uh, this mysterious, unusual side effect is, um. It's it's commonly known as the Viagra spider. You know, those commercials that say, you know, if it lasts more than four hours, consult your doctor. This spider is one of the reasons it might last more than four hours. In uh, some people, it, it becomes permanent, <laughs> they say, without medicinal help. So yeah, you know, probably best that you weren't down in Australia getting bitten by the, I mean, I, I assume nobody wants permanence but so um, basically
0: aside from the fact that even (laughs) seeing this spider will make you just go that
1: um yeah it just sounds like a very painful rest of your life there (laughs) uh yeah yeah i'm sure there's some medicine that can help but you're gonna want to get help but this is first of all this is a giant spider this is not a little tiny thing that you wouldn't see well how big are we talking scott we're talking take a tarantula and upsize it a little bit this is a big old spider this is a this is a big time and it's a it it really looks a lot like a tarantula without any hair it's a it's a it's a hairless tarantula so presumably you would see this coming but if you didn't as i say um you may have yourself a bit of a problem is, you know, that, that we'll leave it there. Just, if you see one of these, just steer clear is uh, is the point. Yeah, hope, uh, hope your day is better than whoever found that one. That would be a little bit frightening. Let me tell you what's coming up on the show today besides medicinal spiders. Uh, we're going to be talking about Paul Bernardo because there was a bill that has been brought forward to um, a private member's bill to try and get the situation that we've been hearing about with Paul Bernardo dealt with. Um, you know, the story that he's been moved to a medium security prison and this private members bill is, uh, is endeavoring to say, if you are convicted of multiple murderers, multiple murders, you will spend your entire sentence in maximum security prison. That is the, that's what this bill is pushing for. Will it go through? Will it gain any kind of traction? Don't know, but we're going to talk to the MP who's bringing it forward as a private members bill. There is, uh, the, the national post did some digging around and discovered that many, 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 many of the federal court appointees under the liberal government, the judges that the liberals have appointed have been liberal party donors. You know, we like to think in Canada that we don't have the same thing that they have down in the States where you have politically active, politically appointed, politically designated judges. May not be true. We may be no better than them, except that we don't know about it. Down there, you vote for a judge and they have a political affiliation. Here, you don't vote, so you think they're not political. Mm, we'll we'll get into that one. Russia is sending a rocket into space, uh, trying to make a soft landing on the moon. What happens if Russia gets back to the moon before the West, before the United States? We'll, we'll talk about that one. Uh, we are going to be chatting about... Um, Preparedness for natural natural disasters. This is a interesting discussion there that we'll get into deep fake technology. The United States is now looking into a law that would regulate deep fake technology to keep it out of political campaigns. If you don't know why this would be such a big deal, go look up some deep fake technology. You can now get anybody on TV or on your computer to say anything. You could have Joe Biden by computer. In the most convincing thing possible. So you're absolutely convinced it's Joe Biden, you could have him say something horrendous or Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Kamala Harris or whoever else. Are we doing anything up here to prevent this technology from running rampant up here in that way? We'll get to it. Uh, Quebec Major Junior Hockey League banning fighting. We'll talk about that. If you were like most people around here, when you heard four, five, six weeks ago, whatever it was, that Paul Bernardo had been transferred from maximum security to a medium security prison. You were probably ticked. I know that I was doing a show that night and we opened the phone lines and every line was lit up for the entire time we were talking about this. People were miffed. And I don't know if that's a strong enough word about the fact that probably the worst of the worst wasn't getting the worst of the worst punishment. Well, now a Ontario MP uh, from that region is bringing forward a private member's bill to try and change things so that people like Paul Bernardo, thankfully there aren't that many, but people like Paul Bernardo would do his time in the place where most people would deem it appropriate, which is maximum security. Tony Baldinelli is the MP for Niagara Falls. He joins us now. Tony, thank you for this. Appreciate it.
2: Oh, thank you, Scott.
1: Uh, I'm guessing that you probably either heard directly or just heard in the wind the same reactions I did when people caught wind of the fact that Paul Bernardo was not in maximum security anymore.
2: Oh, yes. Uh, Immediately uh, started hearing from uh, constituents. And and in fact, uh, uh, the reason why I I worked with our leader's office and our critics uh, was I received a call from uh, friends of the family and uh, schoolmates of Kristen French. who who indicated to me, they said, uh, Tony, this decision is not the right thing. What can you do? How can you speak out? What can uh, you as opposition members do to to ensure that this doesn't happen again? And so I was able to to come forward and... create uh, with the assistance, again, of our leader and our, our, our shadow critics, uh, Bill C-342, that will ensure uh, that uh, those multiple murderers and those classified as dangerous offenders be classified as maximum security and have to serve their time in a maximum security institution.
1: Will ensure, those are your words, will ensure, but that's only if it ever gets to the House of Commons and gets debated, because as a private members bill, there is no guarantee you're ever going to get hurt
2: well that's correct, but I mean our our job and my job as, as the Member of Parliament uh, for this region and Niagara Falls riding is to bring forward the concerns of my constituents and and those residents, including uh, resolutions that were passed by both uh, the, the city of Thorold and the city of St. Catharines, indicating to the government that their displeasure with this decision, and that changes need to be made.
1: It- the process, if let's say, I mean, polls are showing that your party is doing well right now. The election isn't yet. But let's say two years from now, you did form government. And even if this private members bill never made it onto the House floor, is there anything that gets in the way of it coming forward when you form government?
2: Well, if we form government, I mean, we we can bring it forward immediately. But again, Scott, I mean, my my job and our job as as members of Parliament is to ensure that this issue remains... Uh, at the forefront, and, and when we return in September, I've, there's several ways we we can continue to do this. I can raise this issue as a as a unanimous consent motion. There'll be several conservatives who have opportunities for private members' businesses. Uh, that'll be coming up in, in in the coming session. They could take this on for us to bring it forward so that it gets debated uh, you know, almost immediately once we return. There are ways that we can keep this issue going, and, and that's my pledge, and my pledge to the, those friends of the family that we're going to keep this issue at the forefront.
1: It, are you confident, though, that it will get anywhere? I mean, as I say, I think many people listening, and many people even if they're not listening, would have said, yes, I support someone doing something, but are you confident it will get to the places it needs to get to make changes happen?
2: Well, I can't speak on on what this liberal government will do. All I can say is uh, I remain confident in our ability as members of the opposition, uh, our conservative party, that we're going to keep this issue alive. And what we're going to be doing is pressing this federal liberal government to fix what they broke by making changes through legislation like C-83, which, re- which introduced this least restrictive environment wording, which created a system which allowed Correctional Services Canada to make that transfer. I mean, when the, the commissioner uh, for Correctional Services Canada uh, was talking in her report, and she still... Uh, you know, despite the fact that he's been moved, he's, she, she mentions that he's still a psychopath. I mean, something needs to be done. Uh, why are we allowing the most dangerous of Canadian offenders to be transferred to medium security? If he doesn't qualify for maximum security, then surely who does?
1: The government has been very clear right now that it isn't the one that makes the decisions about where someone goes for prison. That's Corrections Canada. But can the government... Make d- d- um, draw up the guidelines of how Corrections Canada operates? Can it say you must... Can, in other words, could the government put a law like this into place, or is this entirely the purview of Corrections Canada?
2: No, no. The, this legislation can be put in place right now, in fact, too, Scott. The, the, the minister responsible has the authority under the legislation to issue directives to the Commissioner for Correctional Services. He could ask for it to be reviewed and and a decision uh, rendered so that it be changed. Also, you've got to go back to 2019 when this liberal government passed C-83. They changed the wording on prison selection. They're the government that introduced the wording on least restrictive environment, which allowed the officials from Correctional Services of Canada to then transfer. It's because of the wording in the legislation. The, the, the officials from Correctional Services of Canada are only implementing what this government put in place as the mm. guidelines.
1: One of the real challenges here is that uh, in recent years, maybe more than recent years, In Canada, it seems the effort has been put on rehabilitation, and moving people towards reintegration rather than punishment. What it sounds like in this particular case, when you're talking about people who are multiple murderers, there is a punishment component in this to keep them locked up. Is is that something that we should be going back to in certain circumstances?
2: Well, yes. I mean, that's why my, my, my specific wording is my legislation applies to those that are classified as dangerous offenders and those multiple murderers who've committed multiple murders and that under the legislation they'll be classified as maximum security and that they serve their time in a maximum security institution
1: it is uh it is something i am sure that has uh, that will be met with very popular opinion honestly i i do think there are a lot of people especially around here especially old enough to remember Paul Bernardo, which is becoming a smaller and smaller segment of the population, honestly. But uh, among those, I think this will be a very popular move. Whether it gets anywhere, we'll, we'll see about that one. Uh, MP Tony Baldinelli, really appreciate you taking time today. Thank you for this.
2: Thank you so much for your time.
1: An eight-month investigation by National Post and the Investigative Journalism Foundation of 1,308 judicial and tribunal appointments by the Liberal government since 2016 shows an overwhelming majority, 76.3% of appointees who had previously made political donations had given to the Liberal Party of Canada. By comparison, just 22.9% of appointees had given to the Conservative Party of Canada and 17.9% of those who donated gave to the New Democratic Party. Moreover, the number of Conservative donors appointed to the judiciary has dropped significantly since the Liberals came to power, whereas the number of NDP donors more than doubled between 2016 and 2022, the year the NDP entered into an agreement to support the Liberals. We like to think in this country that our judges are totally not political. They have no political affiliation, unlike the states where you elect people based on their political leanings. Apparently, not true. Daniel Perry is a consultant with Summa Strategies who joins me now. Daniel, how are you today? Good, yourself? I am great. This is, I think this is going to be a bit of an eye opener to some people who, as I say, believe that our judicial system is totally without politics and they just choose the best people and it doesn't matter where they stand. That that clearly does not seem to be true.
3: No, and absolutely not. It's like any other government appointment. Um, there's always some political consideration in mind when you're making decisions on the court or, what it, or if it's even in an executive office. You want to make sure you have like-minded people uh, in there. So I think that's part of the reason why we've seen uh, liberal appointees in this situation.
1: But this was this not something – am I wrong or was this not something that when the liberals got elected, they said they were trying to fix because they had accused Stephen Harper of this?
3: Mm -hmm. That's exactly true. They did accuse – the Conservatives and Mr. Harper of this, they reformed it in 2016, and to be fair, it went from 100% down to 76%, so I'm sure they're going to say that that was reducing it, but no, you're absolutely right, Um, they have a problem on their hands with this one.
1: So, would it be reasonable to... um? to believe that if you are someone who donates to a particular party that you necessarily are going to share those political views to the point, you're going to share those views obviously to a degree, but do we believe that that means that you are going to take those to the bench and make decisions or do we believe that those people who get into those positions can say, you know, yeah, I I supported them, but I'm going to be totally fair and it's going to have no impact on how I decide things.
3: I think politics Even if you're not acting political, it is in the back of your mind. But I think broadly speaking, when we're talking about lawyers in this case, some of them are businessmen and businesswomen, and they donate to all political parties. So I think it would be interesting to see if when the conservatives were in power, if the same 76% of people also donated to them and whatnot. But I think broadly speaking, when it comes to the law, especially here in Canada, we usually don't let our politics get involved because a lot of lawyers that move up in this position, they, they get there based on their merit.
1: How, how would we, and we meaning the government, not me and you, but the government, how would we change this? Because it seems to be an ongoing thing. And it also seems that no matter who you would put in position to name judges, they are going to be someone who was appointed by a government. It, it, it seems impossible to sort of cut the strings that would tie government to this process.
3: It absolutely is. And I think that's where the, what the liberals try to do in 2016 when they look to reform the system. Ultimately, they failed in that. One way they could do it would be similar to how they do it for the Senate appointments. They kick it to a, in an independent committee and have them decide so they can take some of the political heat on it if there are some uh, liberals and like minded people like that that like get appointed to it. But broadly speaking, the government needs to find a way of taking a step back from this and remove themselves because leading up to this, there was a lot of criticism, even from the Supreme Court Justice, on how slow they were moving to appoint judges. And it seems like they appointed some friends in this case, just to kind of move the process along and kind of close some of those openings.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, okay, so one way we could do this is say anyone who donates to a political party cannot be named as a judge. Well, the problem with that, even if that's somehow helpful, is it doesn't mean that the people who are choosing still aren't going to be friends or connected or know where your political leanings are. Just taking out the donation doesn't Mm -hmm. suddenly make you totally apolitical.
3: No, absolutely not. And uh, since we're talking about lawyers, I think there would be a constitutional challenge to that not allowing those that have donated before, because that, I feel like it would impact something to do with their constitution. So I think it's part of the equation when we're thinking about this is, yes, they may have donated, but what other skills do they have? And hopefully when the government is looking into this, they're not just looking at liberalists, the donor base for the liberals, and they're actually looking at the accomplishments of the, of the judges that they're looking to appoint, because at the end of the day, that's what matters the most is a skill set.
1: You know, one of the things that I, I I didn't see it in this article, and so I'm sure it exists, but it seems stunning to me the number of people who are appointed who have donated. It seems there's almost nobody who gets appointed who hasn't. Surely there's got to be some people who do fall into the totally apolitical group.
3: There has to be some out there. Um, yeah, because not everyone donates. I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't donate as well. Um, but I'm sure a lot of them do also. So I think it's a fine balance when it comes to that. Again, like I think just donating to a political party, especially when you're in law or even in business, you donate to all political parties that are involved. So I I think it might be a bit of a narrow way to look at this.
1: Uh, the, the other part about this that... Um that does become, I think even a little more concerning is that it's one thing to have. If you, if you've appointed someone who's going to be a criminal judge in Dryden, Ontario, does their, does their political leaning have that much of an impact? I don't know. But when you start getting into superior and Supreme court Mm -hmm. positions where you can have impact on laws that affect Mm -hmm. the entire country, that's where this thing to me becomes really important that we take the politics out of it somehow.
4: Yeah,
3: absolutely, because we, we see how it's going in the U.S. when politics comes into the equation, and 5, 10, 15 years from now, we don't want to have a country like that. We want to make sure that our rule of law is based in legal precedent and not just the color of the government of the day, uh, and that is a serious concern. I think this article brings that to light.
1: How come, we've, how come we're only learning about this now? Is this something that we just haven't known, or has it been a quiet little secret, or is something different happening?
3: I think it's definitely a quiet secret. It's no surprise that a government would want to appoint those that are loyal to them, those that think similarly to them to positions of power. um It's been going on for decades. I think now people are just becoming more and more aware of it because it sometimes it's not as subtle as it once was
1: mm-hmm. you know i one of the interesting things that's been going on you mentioned the states is uh the mm-hmm. Supreme Court in the states lately has been under great criticism for being very political mm. Mm-hmm. And I've, all, I've thought that it's an interesting argument to make that nobody seemed to have a problem with the politics when the, par, when the Supreme Court leaned with a majority of liberals, but suddenly with a mm-hmm. majority of conservatives now, it's all political. It's, it's a, you know Politics is a very strange thing to mm-hmm. infuse in one way or another, and everyone's going to have their say on whether it's political or not, depending on whether they like the decisions.
3: Absolutely. I'm sure if you ask conservatives when it was leading uh, liberal back in the day, they had a big problem with it too. I can guarantee you that. But no, I think broadly speaking, like in general, when it comes to the law, I don't think that's something that we need to get political. But that's more of a black and white thing where I find politics is sometimes a bit of a gray zone there. And you don't want that in those deciding law and deciding people's fate.
1: Daniel Perry, a consultant with summer Strategies. I really appreciate you doing this today. Thanks, Daniel. Take care. Russia has entered the space race again. Apparently, uh, Russia sent off a moon landing spacecraft, first one in 47 years on Friday, uh, with plans to make a soft landing on the lunar South pole in the next few days. This is, I mean, we remember back, well, if you know your history or you were old enough to be alive at the time, you'll remember that back when NASA was racing to get Neil Armstrong and them out of the moon, they were racing against Russia, the Soviet union. I believe, and my next guest will clarify whether I'm correct or not, but in 47 years would we'll say that probably I am, that Russia has kind of gone quiet here, and yet here they are back in the mix. India also doing it. It's, um, it's an interesting time all of a sudden. Dr. Elena Hyde is the director of the Alan Carswell Observatory in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. Joins us now. Dr. Hyde, thank you.
5: Thanks for having me on. You're absolutely right. It is a very interesting time for um, all kinds of things, lunar
1: So when I hear that Russia is now getting back into this, and it's been 47 years, and I read today that, help me out here, it's a Soyuz rocket. Wasn't the Soyuz the model of rocket they were using back in the 60s?
5: Yes, and they're extremely uh, durable. I mean, they've seen a a few little updates, but the great thing about the, uh, the Soviet Union and now the Russian space program is just the fact that it has Still maintained its its capacity in so many ways, and actually, I think that's why they renamed the mission to Luna Twenty Five to sort of emphasize a continuity of um, sort of their exploration, their previous exploration program that they are they are picking up now. I, I think it was originally going to be called the Luna Glob Lander. Um, but Luna twenty five sounds pretty cool. Anyway, <laughs> it sounds a
1: lot 25. better, but yeah so, yeah. so this is not the case. They they've kept this up. This is not the case then of an antiquated Russian system firing up a Winnebago held together with duct tape just because it's old and fault. This is still a a a modern, basically usable system that will probably get to the moon.
5: Well, and that's that's one thing to remember. The Soyuz rockets are are a system that has been extremely reliable, but. They um, they're very very different from what we've heard about with uh, with SpaceX and with Blue Origin and that kind of launch system the sort of more modern launch system I think it's a case of well and this is a bit, little bit of my opinion is they're they're showing that it still works mm. and it's great that they're going back to the moon and especially targeting that south re- south polar region where there is a lot of chances for water, uh, which we've been talking more and more about uh, in situ on the moon, which is just really, really cool.
1: Okay, is it great that Russia is going back? We know where Russia stands in the world stage and the world pecking order right now and what people think about Russia with Ukraine and everything else. Is it great that Russia is doing this?
5: Well, it's great that it's happening scientifically. And the fact that they're going there for Um, an exploration of the moon, you can't help but be interested. And of course, um, as fellow humans, we hope that they will share whatever data they they find. It is, as you say, interesting times because it's not just a mission to the moon. It's actually a bit of a space race between Russia and India. And India has launched a similar mission, the Chandrayaan-3, which is part of their lunar exploration program, And of course, Trandon 1 was um, hugely instrumental in discovering and uh, quantifying locations that had actual solid water ice on the moon, uh, hidden inside craters for the most part. Um, And the fact that we've now got this kind of competition happening uh, August 23rd should be a very interesting
2: day.
1: Will, would you expect Russia to share this? Because I, again, I, my history is not always on point, but as I recall back in the space race in the sixties, there was a lot of secrecy when each of them, you know, NASA or Russia, they, it wasn't always sharing. Would we think Russia would share interesting discoveries with the rest of the world or would this be kept under wraps?
5: Well, you know, we can all, we can always hope, but um, scientifically, you hope that all results are published for everyone to see. And with India going as well, and their are Chandrayaan-free, um, if they did get a result and India didn't, I would think that it would be in, you know, if you want to have bragging rights, you have to tell people. So there's always that angle as well. Um, and, uh, you know, we do have multiple crafts. It's not just uh, India and China, but of course, you know, the U.S. is interested, Canada is interested, because we have the, the Artemis program locked and loaded and uh, very interesting times lunar-wise ahead for lots and lots of different countries. So if they land, this is an uncrewed lander. What they're hoping to do is, of course, you know, take some samples and um, you know, actually look at lunar soil, um, analyze it, look at the minerals, look at the, uh, the imaging look at dust and micrometeorites. And so it's, it's actually similar what their two missions are both trying to do because you wouldn't want to send a human crew to the moon and have them be, um, for example, unable to use the lunar soil in the way that they were hoping to because, of course, you can imagine building things out of lunar soil or processing lunar soil to get water out. And so you don't want surprises in that in that respect.
1: <laughs> we we have very little time left, but I know that it's not manned or or personed or womaned or whatever whatever we say these days. But uh, they have talked about them, Russia and China, maybe together, maybe separately, trying to send people back to the moon. Are we in a new space race? Does it matter to NASA and to the West that we beat them, or does it matter anymore like that?
5: Well, I I am sure that there are people who would like to go first
1: yes sure days. sure yeah no that's coming a it's a
5: artemis artemis program coming up um i would say that from what has been seen in science so far the the joint artemis program uh which uh which will actually see a canadian astronaut as well does certainly seem better positioned than than some of the others
1: we shall see. I mean, it is a fascinating time, and especially, I mean, I, I don't mind a bit of a space race. I mean, I, of course, I have no vested interest in it. It's just kind of fun to, to see this happening. But it is uh, it is a fascinating time right now with all this stuff going on. Dr. Elena Hyde, thank you so much for this.
5: Absolutely. And if anyone is interested, um, if you want to actually see the lunar water maps, they are actually up on the Chandrayaan 1 of website. Highly recommended. You will not be able to see it naked eye when you're looking at the moon, so (laughs) don't be surprised.
1: Dr. Elena Hyde, thank you.
5: Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve
5: into the issue until he is.
1: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's
5: talk.
0: 900 CHML.
1: There are natural hazards, natural disasters, natural outcomes that we could face in this area, but are we ready for them? Well, a piece in the the conversation.com, here's the headline, Canadians are unprepared for natural hazards. Here's what we can do about it. Julie Wright is the director of Partners for Action. She joins us now. Julie, how are you today?
4: I'm very well. Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, Thrilled to have you on here because this is one of those things, uh, and maybe you will disagree with this, but it seems like this is one of those things that we don't really give a lot of time to thinking about until it's on us and we have to think about it.
4: You're absolutely right about that. And in our study that we just completed and published, uh, we were able to identify the top barriers that that people face in terms of being aware of their risks and prepared. And number one is it won't happen to me. Um, number two is, is cost. You know, there's a lot of decisions that we make about our household finances and being prepared for an emergency sort of falls off the priority list. And number three is being unaware of the risk entirely. And so that's something that we definitely have to work on.
1: Let's go to the, it won't happen to me. Cause I, uh, you know, I'm probably guilty of that as much as the next person around here, Hamilton, Southern Ontario. What are the things we should be aware that we say, oh, well, it could actually happen to us. We just don't think of it.
4: Well, I think we've got lots of examples of, of recent emergencies, um, you know, in the last decade or so. We've had the derecho that came through uh, last May that caused a huge amount of damage all across Ontario, really affecting more of the, the Ottawa region to the, the greatest degree. Um, you know, back in 2013, we saw extreme rainfall, flood downtown Toronto. Um, we've certainly seen wind damage. Uh, we've had historic ice storms hit Ontario. Um, so I think you know the things that we're re- really looking at in the southern ontario context are, are extreme heat extreme rainfall wind damage ice storm damage those those are big ones
1: do we think though do most people think of those kind of things especially things like extreme heat or wind do we think of those as natural disasters or natural hazards i, I mean i think most people would think earthquake or bushfire or flood or something, which, I, you know, I get, but the other ones, it almost seems like we would just say, well, that's just something that happens sort of, but I don't know that I consider it a natural hazard.
4: Well, you're right about that. I mean, um, in the context of the study that we undertook, we looked specifically at floods, wildfire, and earthquakes, which are considered to be natural hazards, it becomes a disaster when humans and human infrastructure are involved. Um, So, you know, if there were no people there and it was just nature, then it would just run its course and there would be no insured damages. No one would be be paying out of pocket for, for what has occurred. The emergency aspect of it happens when people and human infrastructure are in the way of the hazard. And what's different about, say, extreme heat or extreme rainfall is that these are events that are multiplied by our climate conditions. So as the atmosphere gets warmer, the air holds more moisture and we have more unstable weather systems. So this extreme weather is starting to creep into the natural hazard sort of nomenclature, you know, the the terminology that we use.
1: So so recent studies, including yours, have found that our awareness of these kind of things is generally low. What, what does that mean? Like less than half the people or less than 75% of people? What, what would be low as far as awareness of these things?
4: Yeah, I've got some great stats for you on this. So Partners for Action, which is a research initiative at the University of Waterloo that focuses on empowering Canadians to be flood risk aware. We did two national studies, um, surveys in 2016 and 2020, and both of them reinforced the same point. So these are Canadians who are living in floodplain zones. Six percent were aware of their risk. Just six percent. Why?
1: Why Is it just because they've never been told or they've not been paying attention or why?
4: It's a number of factors. I mean, for certain, floodplain mapping is complicated, and there was sort of a gap in our floodplain mapping Um, investments from the 1990s on. So, you know, in Ontario, we have conservation authorities that do that work and Ontario has actually been in pretty good shape about um, ensuring that, you know, we've properly mapped it and that we're sharing that information with municipalities. Um, So that really has determined a lot of our land use strategy at the municipal level. But in other places across the country. Um, it's harder to find out if you live in a, in a floodplain, mm. not only that, but in many parts of the country, it's not even required to disclose that when you're doing a, a real estate transaction. Well, um, so you don't, you don't always have to disclose that your house was damaged by, by overland flooding.
1: Well, let's go. I mean, true confessions. I, I don't know if I live in a floodplain area and that's probably cause I've never looked it up. But how would you find out where, I mean, if it now all of a sudden someone says, well, now I want to go find out, is there an easy way to do this? Or is part of the problem that it's not easy to find out?
4: You're absolutely right. It's not that easy. So it, it requires, you know, either going through a portal at the municipal level or through the conservation authority and finding the GIS maps and typing in your address. And then it'll show you the floodplain boundary. But, you know, a lot of people aren't really very familiar with GIS maps, and you, sometimes you have to turn off the layers. Um, so, in my when I was the director of Partners for Action, uh, we also were um, stewarding a site called FloodSmart Canada, which curated basically all the resources for floodplain maps across Canada because there are provincial jurisdictions, so every province has sets of maps. And I would get phone calls from real estate agents from. Uh, from individuals who were looking to find out, you know, how do I how do I figure this out where I live? So it has not been easy. And the federal government through its Public Safety Canada that is responsible for um, helping Canadians stay safe and stay risk informed. um, And they are in the process of putting together a flood portal. And the, the, you know, the holy grail of this would be Put in your postal code and see if you right. are adjacent to the floodplain.
1: Well, and, and even as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe it'll be a really good idea then that when you go to buy a house that has, that's mandated that that information is included in the purchase agreements or whatever else. But I got to think that every real estate agent on the planet would fight, would fight against that because all of a sudden <laughs> it's a deterrent to buy the place.
4: Yeah, that that is definitely a concern. And um, but, you know, what's a greater concern that it costs $40,000 every time you, you know, your basement is flooded. And I'm sure with inflation, that price has now gone up. So we just have to keep um, this in balance, the idea that for every, you know, dollar that is covered by insurance, $3 are covered by the taxpayer and by just the average individual reinvesting in, in home repairs. So it's, it's a very unequal equation and it's definitely something that we need to improve.
1: Uh, there's a piece that people can read about this. Canadians are unprepared for natural hazards. Here's what we can do about it. It's published in conversation.com. You can find that one. Uh, we've been talking to Julie Wright, the director of Partners for Action. Really appreciate your time, Julie. Thank you for this.
4: Thanks again for having me.
2: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: There is now computer technology that allows essentially video of a real person to be manipulated to look like real video of that person saying anything that you choose to work through the computer into their mouth. So you can alter the video, you can alter the audio, and essentially you take something that is benign, it doesn't have to be be malicious what you do with it, but potentially you could take something that is benign, you have Justin Trudeau saying, you know, I wish you all a happy Hanukkah, and you take that video and you manipulate it and suddenly he could say something horrendous that he never said, but for everybody watching this, your jaw would drop and you go, wait, what did he just say? And by the time you realize that it's not real, there's a lot of people that will never see the correction or the oh, that wasn't really real, or they'll believe it was it's there's huge problems here. Well, the states is now in the process of regulating AI deepfakes in campaign ads for this very reason. Is Canada doing anything like this? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, he's a good friend of ours. He's a technology analyst and journalist, joins us now. Carmi, how are you today?
6: I am great, Scott. Wonderful to be with you.
1: Well, this is this to me. When I saw that the States was doing this, I said to myself, I really hope that Canada is also taking some steps, but I haven't heard of anything like this, are we?
6: No, we're not. And that's that, frankly, that's worse. And we did talk about it in 2019. There was a bit of a flurry of news coverage about concerns that as deep fakes were rising, we we had at the time seen some uh, early, somewhat janky videos of uh, Obama, Barack Obama, who, you know, it was obvious that they weren't real, that they were still computer generated, but they were the fidelity was good enough that it was like, "Mm, this is going somewhere that is somewhat problematic. And so there was some discussion and there was some concern north of the border uh, in the lead up to the 2019 federal election that, you know, there was the potential for it to be used. And questions were asked. But then the story, as often happens, just kind of faded. and We didn't talk about it anymore. There wasn't any kind of national initiative to investigate deep fakes in the Canadian political landscape. and maybe put together some rules by which political parties should be living so that you know we are at minimum risk of seeing an ad that is based on fakery that might prompt us to make a different decision at the ballot box than we might otherwise make and so canada had an opportunity we don't seem to have taken it up and now here we have the federal election commission in the us uh, basically saying you know what this is a problem it's an even bigger problem now than it was a few years ago the technology is way better it's powered by artificial intelligence ai is now in the hands of millions of people out there not just in labs and we got to do something because left to our own devices uh, we are going to have this technology being used in regular ads and we're already seeing that the Republican National Committee has already issued a number of ads using AI-generated imagery that is not reflective of reality. Uh, little tiny notifications in the corner that, of course, nobody sees or reads, and now people are making uh, election decisions, voting decisions, based on information on imagery that never occurred. That is a terrifying. That place is for that is.
1: And, and let's let's use the example. I don't believe, for example, that we're going to see something where. Pierre Polyev is saying, oh, I I really don't like Asians and it's a clear or something like that. I mean, pick whatever group you want to say. That's not going to be the case. It's going to be one of these things. You know, we see them pop up uh, every once in a while of a politician speaking to a group and it's kind of grainy and it was taken on a phone camera or something. It'll be that kind of video that is very believable all of a sudden that that person may have said something bad when they thought they were not being taped that could actually change the outcome of an election. It can.
6: I mean, you're absolutely right, Scott. It's the subtle kinds of messaging as opposed to the overt or obvious. You know, it's almost like when someone, you know, when a racist doesn't simply walk up to your face and say, I hate you because of your specific ethnic ethnic or religious background, But, you know, they say something that's somewhat couched, somewhat shrouded, somewhat subtle, and you kind of have to think twice about it. Did did I just hear what I thought I heard? Well, and not easily,
1: and Carmi, sorry, but not easily disprovable. If this was something that was taken in front of a huge audience, there's going to be hundreds of people who can say, no, he didn't say that. But if it's taken in a way that, you know, who are these people who are in this meeting and it's secretive, again, that's the kind of thing where you go, man, that's going to be problematic if someone does that.
6: That's right. You know, difficult to fact check, difficult yes. to verify or yes. validate. Uh, and then, of course, if it does go viral, it spreads far and wide long before the truth can come out. And you said it yourself in the intro that these things do tend to find an audience, a very widespread audience. Uh, and then, of course, by the time the truth does come out, it's too late. Uh, we're not going to when when someone de- deigns to issue a, a, a correction. Sorry, we were wrong. That wasn't really real imagery, um, you know. And, and we're apolog- we're really sorry for it. Uh, by then, it's too late because pretty much everyone who consumed the viral moment they've already moved on to something else. They've made that up their minds. They've made their decisions. Right. So they really there, there's no way to undo this. There is no delete button on the uh, internet.
1: Especially, let's say something comes out a week before the election. So there's uh-huh. no possible way to undo it then. So what, what would be, we are very short on time here, Carmi, unfortunately, but what should be put in place? You can't, well, you could say AI or deep fake is illegal. I don't know how you're going to enforce that, but do you make this a criminal thing where if you do this and don't announce it because of the possibilities, do you, I mean, what do you do to try and make something with teeth?
6: I think uh, the authorities responsible for adjudicating elections and making sure that the rules are in place and followed um, have specific rules on use of AI in political messaging, in, up to and including advertising, as well as, uh, as 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 consequences, punishments, up to and including criminal prosecution if those rules are not followed. This is the very bedrock of our democracy. This isn't misdemeanor stuff. This is felony stuff. And we need to have rules in place and we need to have agencies at a government level uh, who are are willing and able to put that on their shoulders uh, and and drive these things through right through to legislation that is then enforceable. Uh, if there are no consequences, this thing will just continue to happen uh, because if if there's room for political uh, parties to take advantage, they certainly will. And you know, bet your bottom dollar they're already using AI yeah. to do just that. And we need to draw some lines in the sand now. Yeah,
1: and and, and we got to run here, but it may not even be the parties. It may just be someone who has a political view. So the party is at arm's length; they don't have anything to do with it. But again, you know, we we always Someone will say, well, you know, you're, you're just picking out worst case scenarios. Hey, something like this comes out with one of the candidates a week before. As we say, the election could be affected. Then after the election, when we discover that this thing that affected it is fake, how do you undo <laughs> that? Then then you're into yeah. a whole world of what do you do about that? And I don't know there's an answer. We'll, we'll talk about it at another time for sure, but it's- um, I'll be
6: following it, I promise. And yeah, the time to talk about it is now long before the next
1: election 100%. Uh, Carmen Levy, we always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it, Scott.
5: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's
2: talk 900 CXM1.
1: The Quebec Major Junior Hockey League created some news yesterday that certainly deserves a discussion. Uh, Their formal announcement was that fighting is now banned in their league. If a fight occurs, those engaged must be ejected from the game immediately. Any player found to have instigated the fight will receive an automatic one-game suspension. The person declared to be the aggressor during the fight will receive a minimum of two-game suspension on top of the game that they've just been kicked out of. Is this the future of hockey or is this just Quebec's league? Uh, Ian Kennedy is a writer for the hockey news. He is an analyst for yahoo.ca sports and he's an author of an on account of darkness, shining a light on race in sport joins us now. Ian, how are you? Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm thrilled that you are able to do this because, um, I, okay, I, I I can see the logic behind banning fighting in junior hockey with a caveat, the league, if you're going to take fighting out of the game, the league had better do a really, really good job at bringing down discipline on all the other stuff that sometimes fighting maybe helped resolve on the ice by preventing. Am I, is that a fair comment or do you think that's overstating it?
7: Well, I think that if you watch what's been happening across junior hockey, the Ontario Hockey League itself uh, has implemented more strict fighting rules across the last several years where subsequent discipline is, put in place for every uh, additional fight that you have during a season. And the fact of the matter is there is no statistical proof that fighting uh, takes care of any of those extracurricular activities. You know, the flashing, the spearing, the high sticking. Uh, It's just not proven that those things are reduced by fighting. What is proven is that uh, fighting as a hockey player reduces your lifespan, can cause concussions, and CTE can lead to addiction and uh, uh, self-harming thoughts. It's uh, it, the, the stats of what the benefits are versus the costs here, um, I think make this a pretty obvious choice, especially when you look across the world at fighting in, in the game.
1: So do you see this then as, well, the Quebec League is going to be the first, but others are going to follow?
7: I see this as the fact that we're the last here in Canada. Uh, If you go to the NCAA, if you go to uh, junior hockey in Europe, to to the professional leagues in Europe, uh, to the international, you know, you go to the Olympics or the world championships, there is no fighting. It's just not a part of the game elsewhere in the world. So the fact that we're catching up now, I think speaks a lot to what we've seen happening with Hockey Canada, uh, a cultural shift around the game, but also more of a focus on and the fact that we understand the, the dangers of these types of things that are truly outside of the game. Fighting is not a part of hockey. It's not within the rules of hockey. You're assessed a five-minute penalty if you fight. So the argument that it is part of the game is completely false. You don't score a goal with your fists. And um, I don't think that we've seen Sidney Crosby or Nathan McKinnon or any of those players that have come out of the uh, Quebec Major Junior Hockey League uh, fighting too often.
1: I think one of the concerns that some people would have is not necessarily that the fighting is going away, but that it's a step towards getting less and less physicality in the game. We, we certainly in many leagues see way fewer big hits than we used to. Is that a fair concern that this is a, a graduated step towards removing a lot of the physical play, whether it's fighting or just body checking?
7: I don't think so. I think physicality and body checking is always going to be a part of the game. It's a legal part. It's uh, even when you watch, uh, you know, lower levels or or, um, any version of the game, there's plenty of body contact that is uh, very useful in separating a player from the puck, which is the purpose of a body check. It's not to hurt. It's not to intimidate. It's to gain puck possession. And I don't think that anyone is ever going to argue for taking away from that. Now we have seen Many more rules protecting against contact of the head. Um, and that's a logical step, but it's not going to eliminate uh, body contact or checking from from the game of hockey. That's That's always been a legal portion of the game. All they're doing right now is clamping down on something that's always been an illegal portion of the game.
1: Let's go back to the thing that we were just talking about a second ago, about whether this is going to expand to other leagues. What what makes this particular thing interesting is the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League is its own entity, but it's actually not entirely its own entity because at a certain point of the year, it will compete or a team from its league will compete against the Ontario Hockey League and the Western Hockey League in the Memorial Cup. They, they do interact. So uh, I go back to the question, do you see this as being the first of those three that will get rid of it, but the others are bound to follow?
7: I do think the others are bound to follow. Uh, Again, the skill progression in, in Canada right now has really skyrocketed to the fact where if you look back at what kids were capable of doing for skating and puck handling 15 years ago, compared to what hockey players are doing now, the game is far faster. It's far more It's far more physical in a lot of ways because of the speed and the strength of players. Um, But they're going to follow. I I can't imagine that they are going to operate under separate rules. And uh, for all we know, this is kind of the pilot project for the others. But you're right. When the Memorial Cup rolls around, I'm not sure what that will all mean. Uh, I know that uh, obviously fighting in the playoffs of any uh, league is much rarer than uh, regular season. And uh, I think we should take that as another sign that uh, fighting is not necessary. If it's if it's not going to be used in the Memorial Cup or in the Stanley Cup finals as regularly as it is during games that might be inconsequential to the, the grand scheme of things, then uh, perhaps we need to be looking at what we actually believe about the purpose of a fight. But it's definitely not going to be the last league that's doing this.
1: One more thing, Ian, we we're short on time. I wish we had a lot more time to talk about this. It's a fascinating topic. Um, you still, if you go to a game and a fight breaks out, you still get the fans standing up and screaming, they, they are not disinterested in this, whether it's good for players or good for the game or not. Is there a risk that you alienate fans? Again, not talking about the safety of the play, all that stuff set aside, is this something that fans are going to be happy
7: with? Well, if you look at the stats in the National Hockey League, if you, again, if you watch the Olympics, fans are watching those games and the vast majority of games now do not have fights. So it's, it's already decreased to a point where yes, it definitely gets fans out of their seats. It excites a lot of people, but I don't think that anyone's going home from a four, three overtime game and saying, Oh, I wish that there had been a fight instead of (laughs) that, that incredible goal that might've happened in overtime to seal the game. That's, that's not where our brains go. So it's definitely not taking away from the overall love that people have for hockey. Um, but it might take away from some of those, uh, Fond memories that people had of the old school game that uh, has gone by the wayside, anyways.
1: The Good Friday massacre, Quebec and Montreal. Um, you, you can find those on YouTube, I guess, if if you need to get a fill of those. Uh, Ian, great chat. Thanks for doing it, Ian Kennedy from the Hockey News. Thank you. Thanks. Let me read you a number that blew my mind. I I had no idea, zero idea that this number was the number we were talking about here. From a piece in the National Post, data released earlier this year by Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada show 807,750 international students with valid student visas studying at Canadian post-secondary institutions at the end of 2022. Eight over 800,000 international students come to Canada. Now that's fantastic that they love our universities, they want to come here, that we offer the kinds of things that would lure people and draw people and entice people to come from around the world to study at our schools. That's a compliment. Here is the fly in that ointment if there is one. Students who come here don't buy homes, most of them, they rent. And there are people now pointing to this saying, with our current housing crisis, 800,000 people at the bottom of the rental market are driving up rents in a big way or contributing at least to driving up rents in a big way. Steve Pomeroy is with Focus Consulting. He is an industry professor at McMaster University, Canadian Housing Evidence Collaborative and Senior Research Fellow at Carleton University's Centre for Urban Research and Education who joins us now. Steve, thank you for this today.
8: Good afternoon, Scott.
1: This is an interesting one. I had absolutely no idea that we were talking about 800,000 international students, I might've guessed 50,000 at (laughs) most or 60, that number blew my mind when I saw that.
8: Yeah, I suspect it may have had the same effect on a bunch of federal politicians too. I mean, you know, ev- everybody's been sort of fixated on the government's uh, targets to increase new permanent residents. You know, moving that up to uh, to five hundred thousand, and people are saying, you know, if we're going to have that level of immigration, we need to make sure we have housing for them. The student number kind of crept up quietly in the background, and it's not one that there was an explicit target for. It's one that uh, you know the international students with the universities apply apply for visas, and there doesn't seem to be any. Sort of process in place to manage that intake. Um, You know, universities are obviously um, you know they're constrained on their funding. I mean, the tuition fees are frozen, grants are frozen. The only source of new revenues for universities is international student fees, which are quite high. So Mm. you know, acting rationally, universities are going out there and chasing those students as a way to generate much needed revenues. So they're they're behaving rationally, but it's having a, a very very significant impact on local housing markets.
1: You mentioned the the price now. I've not looked at what the actual tuition is, but yes, if you can get a homegrown student or an international student, universities make a lot more money on international students, correct? Yeah. I mean, I don't know off the top of my head the the, the fees either, but they're two
8: to three uh, times higher than domestic students for sure. Yeah. So, the, there, I
1: mean, there is, a, they're, there's,
8: there's, they're not so much displacing domestic students, they're adding on top of them, sure. which is the real, the
1: real issue, right? But again, um, and, and you know, I said this earlier in the week when we were talking about housing and immigration and everything else, it's a dicey thing to talk about because it sounds like you're saying we don't want immigrants. That's not the issue. This is not about disliking immigrants or being xenophobic or racist or anti-immigration. It's just okay. the reality that 800,000 people and, and especially most of these, I'm assuming, Steve, are going to be in university cities that already are larger cities, many of them with limited housing. And you are now infusing this into the rental market that is probably already strained in a lot of these places.
8: Yeah, well, it's not just big cities. I mean, you, you, I mean, small cities are actually impacted more. You look at places like, you know, Trent University in Peterborough, Queen's in um, in Kingston. I mean, Queen has raised, they, they brought in 2,000 international students two years in a row in 17, 18, or 16, 17, 17, 18. In a rental market that only has 16,000 units, they drove vacancy rates from 2.8% to 0.6% almost overnight. Uh, so it has a very, very significant impact to, uh, in, in university kind of towns like that, as well as in the big cities where you've got multiple institutions, you there in, in Hamilton with McMaster and Mohawk together, you know, would, would be a significant number of impacts as well. I think the important thing with the students, I mean, there's two things here. One is, and I agree about the xenophobic thing, it's not trying to say we shouldn't be doing this. It's, it's a matter of saying, how do we better manage this? And and are there solutions? And I think there are. I mean, the first thing is that a lot of these uh, folks, uh, kids that come to the Canada, uh, international student visas, particularly graduate students, they ultimately get into the stream to become new permanent residents. So that net new, the new permanent resident number, a bunch of those folks are actually already here. They're just changing category from a student visa to a new permanent resident. Mm. So there's no consumption effect in terms of the housing market. So that's a bit of an offset. Um, but the um, the the, uh, the the other part of this is that you know the, when 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 they're coming in, they're looking for relatively affordable places to live, which are the same places that low-income folks are looking to live. So it does have a big impact on the bottom end of the rental market, and they're Potentially, is a big displacement effect there, um, and so governments are very concerned uh, these days about uh, you know the affordability crisis and low-income uh, folks being able to find housing. And it's very expensive to build housing for low-income folks uh, in Hamilton. You're looking at uh, you know a capital subsidy of probably three hundred to three hundred fifty thousand dollars per household that's helped that's right. on on you know minimum wage kind of incomes.
1: Should this then you know, fall, Steve? Sorry, should this then fall to the universities if you are going to be bringing in These students, international students, should the universities be expected or should we be pointing the spotlight at them to say, make sure you can provide housing or at least a fair amount of the housing to offset this so that the rental market isn't getting squeezed?
8: Yeah, I mean, there there certainly is a role for the universities to play. I mean, I I don't want to be pointing fingers and say the universities are entirely culpable, you know, the government's equally so. But I think we can look at that and say to universities Look, we obviously need to try and figure this one out. Uh, We're bringing in students. How do we actually build more student housing? We haven't built much student housing in the last 30, 40 years. We built a lot of it in the 60s and 70s, and baby boomers were going to university. But I think we do have opportunities now, certainly developers in um, in Ottawa, some in Waterloo, and certainly it's prolific across many U.S. uh, university towns. There's a very big industry of student purpose-built student housing. And from a business perspective, it's actually quite lucrative. You you rents per square foot on a student accommodation where you've got kind of four kids sharing a four-bedroom unit with shared kitchen, bathroom, or kitchen and living room, but private bathrooms and bedrooms, uh, pencils out on, on a dollar per square foot base is much better than regular rental. So this is a, a unique situation for government to be able to address because they, they can solve this problem without actually spending any money. Uh, they simply have to encourage and incense the private development industry to build purpose-built student housing. They could utilize low-rate financing, which is non-budgetary. So it's just borrowing the bond rate and lending that money back out again. So there's no budgetary effect from doing it. Um, and the, you know there are two options. You, you can Private developers, as they are doing in Waterloo and Ottawa, are building on private sites, on LRT lines that are going to the university and making decent money doing it. Or you could have a situation where the university says, look, we've got some spare land over here. Let's partner with a developer and do a joint partnership. And we, we can share some of the profits and we can share the costs and that kind of stuff. So I think that there's a win-win here for governments and universities to partner with private sector developers uh, to actually build uh, uh, housing. Now, obviously that's not going to help us in the next two or three years because it's going to take us three or four years to build those units um, but we do have to kind of get on top of the issue and if we're going to continue to have these high levels of student intake then we need to basically manage our housing system to accept them.
1: Steve Pomeroy uh, with McMaster University Carleton University really appreciate you doing this thank you for your time. You're welcome Scott have a good day. I'm going to bring Tom in here Tom's on the other side of the glass if you've been listening all week and beyond you know Tom does all the heavy lifting on this show. I just talk. Tom does all the actual work, all the real work. I'm the guy who brings
0: in all the memes that you didn't ask for. That it's... <laughs> Stuff like that. I'm mostly talking to Scott on this one.
1: I can't speak for you, the listener. But so I'm sure you like it. A cheeseburger may be a delicacy in paradise, but the amazing thing to me and probably to people listening is we hear occasionally of foods that are delicacies in certain parts of the world that we look at and we say, what are you thinking? How could that possibly be a delicacy? And I'm quite sure that there are people in other parts of the world who look at us eating a cheeseburger and go, "What are you thinking? That's horrible. Now I don't know, you know pick pick whatever is one of our foods that someone around the world might not like. Nonetheless, I'm going to go through a few of these delicacies from around the world, Tom. I don't okay. know. Are you, are you a gourmand? Are you an adventurous
0: eater? <laughs> um, no, I'm the kind of person who will do takeout if he can afford it and will just uh, put together a box, of, a box of mac and cheese if
1: All right. uh, If the occasion calls for See, it. See, I am very adventurous in eating. Mm, I okay. will try almost anything once. It doesn't mean I'll love it a second time, Yeah. yeah. but I'm willing to try almost anything. However some of these delicacies stretch that position I hold almost to the point I'm like, yeah, I think there may be a limit. So what you're saying is we're doing a Scott Radley stress test right now. <laughs> well, for example, in Japan, if you wish to, you can go to a supermarket and you can buy to steam because apparently they're quite delightful and taste like squid if you steam them, tuna eyeballs, Tuna eyeballs. Tuna eyeballs. Would you steam up some tuna eyeballs and eat those for dinner? That's they're, easy. No, <laughs> they are large because if you ever seen like when they catch tuna, they're they're huge tuna fish. So the eyeballs are it's the size of plums, basically or small peaches. Whoa. Yeah, and you steam them up and mm, mm, mm. I I I'm, I have a problem eating something that's looking at me while I'm eating it. Let alone the thing that is looking at you is the eyeballs. Mm. Yes, that that one. That one, again, I go back to my, I'll try almost anything once. I don't know that that I could do. How about in Cambodia, one of the delicacies, fried tarantulas. I mean, at least it's dead. So you can. (laughs) This I could do. This I (laughs) think I could try. I think I could eat a fried tarantula. Again, I'm not saying regularly. I'm not saying it's going to be a regular part of my diet. I may hate it, but I think I could wrap my head around trying this.
0: I think that is something for me, at least something that I can get behind mostly because I know there's plenty of people out there who just see a spider or tarantula
1: alive and scream in absolute terror. Here's why I think I could do it. When you look at them, there's a picture of them here in front of me. I can't show it to you because we're on radio, but um, when I was in Africa and Uganda a few years ago, we ate cooked grasshoppers and- They put spices on them and stuff and it took a second again to, took a second to really go, okay, I can do this. You want to know something? I could eat those. They were actually pretty tasty. I looked it up right now. It actually
0: doesn't look that bad. I mean, it looks like a spider, but you could easily
1: make that out of maybe chicken or If you put some spices on it, put some salt and some pepper and something else. Right. All right. uh, Here's one that comes from far closer to home that I would have a hard time with. I think, although a uh, jellied moose nose, this is a Canadian dish from n- n- not Hamilton, I don't think I, no. um, in the Northern parts of Canada. But yes, you, um, uh, you boil it up with onions and spices and uh, you remove the hair, which is helpful. Uh, and then you slice it and cover it in a broth that sets into a jelly and it's kind of, instead of head cheese, it's nose cheese. That, I just looked it up as you were talking. It does not look edible at all. It doesn't look too appetizing. No. It, it looks like stuff that has been frozen in, remember in the beginning of Jurassic Park when they found the mosquito that was in the amber? Mm-hmm. It looks like a moose nose that got stuck in amber. Well, to me, it looks like cheese that has been in the fridge for way too long. <laughs> that too.
0: Oh, uh, so I got to question how long it was in the fridge for, if you get that coloration. That's like
1: reddish brown Nasty stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay. Here's one that, again, I'm thinking I might have to take a pass on this one despite my adventurous eating. Arag. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. A I R A G is from Mongolia. You take a glass of fermented horse milk. Actually, you take a glass of horse milk and you let it ferment into a fizzy, sour, and slightly alcoholic liquid. Uh, and it takes a while to get there and then you drink it and, um, you know, uh, I, I'm already thrown off by just the, the horse milk idea, although that's probably <laughs> totally non-problematic, but it's when it starts to get fizzy and it start when milk starts to bubble cause it's gone bad, not sure I'm there, not sure I'm there. No, nah, it just looks like, it looks like curdled milk. It, it kind of does. Uh, have you ever heard, okay, this one's from China. A lot of people have heard of this one. I could do this one, I think, even though it really is disgusting. The century egg. The century, egg. you take an egg and you bury it in clay and ash and salt for months and months and months until the yolk is dark green and it kind of smells very sulfur and then you eat it. I, I may be giving myself too much credit. I think I could try this. I I'm, I'm not making a century egg salad sandwich and taking it to work. But I I might be able to pull that one off. I might
0: be. I would do it on a drunken dare. That's something cuz I'm looking at it. It looks like it's looking back at me and that's something that's freaking me out.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, that's not uh All right. Uh in Mexico, we've got two more here. In Mexico there's something called Hut la coach I don't know how you pronounce it. Huetlacoche. It is. um, It's corn that has got a fungus on it. That you allow it to go kind of bad with the fungus. You allow the fungus to grow. Um, but apparently it it tastes pretty good. You put it in a nacho, in a uh, a burrito or a a A tortilla tortilla shell or something, and away you go. And it's not that. Hmm. I feel like I could stomach it if it was amongst other
0: toppings, like in a burrito or taco, if it was amongst like say lettuce and cheese and stuff like that, maybe as the protein, but on its own, uh, that's a good question.
1: All right. Last one. We are in Hamilton. We have a large Italian population around here, but I don't believe even that many of the folks who come from an Italian background would dive into the delicacy. At least it's described as a delicacy from Italy called casu marzu, which is, uh, I guess translated, I don't speak Italian, I guess translated as rotten cheese. It is a cheese that has gone really bad that has maggots in it that you eat with the maggots. It's a moving cheese oh I, that is any, anything else that I was willing to go down the path and say, maybe I would do it. Well, no. well good news no. on this one.
0: Even if you wanted to, you can't. I just looked it up. Uh, CNN has an article on it saying it's the world's most dangerous cheese. I don't doubt <laughs> and that. And that it's
1: illegal to buy and sell. <laughs> yeah. I don't doubt that. You know, the other one that didn't even make the list, um, And I don't know what it's called. I can't remember. There is a, from Sweden or Finland, there's a can of rotten fish. You can go online and watch people just cracking open the can. They can't do it because of the smell, but it's a delicacy. that I don't know. I I don't understand how things become a delicacy in certain parts of the world when they sound so, so whatever word you wish to use. Anyway, delicious. No, not
2: so much. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live week afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML
1: and online at 900CHML.com. If we haven't completely turned you off dinner, hey, we we are part of your your current diet plan here on 900CHML. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening all week, last week as well. Have a wondrous, wondrous weekend. Thanks to Tom for keeping us on the air and Will for lining everything up. Scott Thompson with or without foreign delicacies on the agenda back next Monday. He'll be back at three o'clock. I'll be back in my normal slot at six o'clock. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Take care.